today. We drove to Portage La Prairie. We've now driven about two blocks to the cemetery and it's literally just on the side of the highway. There's not even a road connecting it. Well, with David, he's been abused at that institution for so many years that he didn't know what, we, what was going on in there. So he ran away about nine times. On the ninth time, they just said, let him go. And he lives in the community and he may be a pain in the neck sometimes, but I've, I've known him longer than anybody. And I agree with people. Institutions should be shut down, not kept open. The men of public government would just wake up and smell the coffee. We should close down these institutions. Thank you. Hey, I'm Megan. I'm a disabled researcher and writer passionate about understanding and making known the conditions of disability and institutions in Canada. And this is Invisible Institutions, a podcast about the long history of disability confinement in Canada and its ongoing impacts on the lives of people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities. A heads up that today's episode deals with confinement, sexual and physical abuse, and suicide. The Manitoba Developmental Centre is one of few remaining large-scale, government-funded and government-operated institutions for people labelled with an intellectual and developmental disability in Canada. The first institution built in the province. It was built to treat, house, and remove people with mental and physical disabilities and isolate them from their family, from their friends, and from their community. Over more than a century, it has institutionalized thousands and thousands of people labeled with some variation of mental, intellectual, developmental disability. Last year, a $50 million class action lawsuit for all persons who resided at the MDC between 1951 and 2020 was certified. Through the lawsuit, the lead plaintiff of the class action, David Wermey, who we have the privilege of hearing from on this episode, alleges that class members experienced verbal, sexual, and physical abuse while institutionalized at the center, and that the province failed in its fiduciary duty and responsibility to protect vulnerable residents. After decades of advocacy, the province announced on January 29, 2021, that the Manitoba Developmental Center would finally be closing its doors. I am based in Ontario these days. So for this episode, I flew back to Winnipeg and drove out to Portage La Prairie. And I'm gonna take you with me on this road trip through the flat plains all the way back in time. Accompanying me on this journey is The Freedom Tour, a 2008 documentary that follows the incredible journey of 16 self-advocates and friends who traveled across the prairies to raise awareness about life in an institution. The doc provides amazing stories told by survivors of institutions who've moved into communities across the prairies. Produced in partnership with the National Film Board, with audio footage generously provided by José Boulanger and Erica McPherson, here's Mark, the narrator of the Freedom Tour. My name is Mark Blanchard. I got involved with the whole Freedom Tour because I heard that the government was putting in $40 million to keep MDC open. I said, I can't let that happen. If we can get the word out that institutions should be shut down, we saw a documentary of a bunch of people in the States. They went all over the States in an RV, and we said to ourselves, hey, this would be great. So after 
months and months and months of planning, it finally came together. I anxiously boarded my first flight during the pandemic. I secured my N95, put my headphones on, and sink into the nostalgia of listening to John K. Sampson as I fly back to where the Atlantic and the Pacific are the very same far away. Flying into Winnipeg is stunning, a flat patchwork quilt of industrial agriculture. Canola, soy, wheat, canola, corn, mustard, soy, wheat. It is so, so flat. There's that joke that you can watch your dog run away for three days. That's just how flat it is. I grew up in Winnipeg and lived there most of my life. I'm biased, but it's an amazing city. Some say great, (laughs) with a strong history of resistance. As I came into the disability community in Winnipeg, I got to know a lot about the wonderful parts of disability culture, resistance, and arts. It's where the Canadian Council on Disability was founded, home to the Manitoba League of Persons with Disabilities, and Jim Dirksen, one of the writers of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. I met Jim at a disability cabaret, put on by Sick and Twisted, a theater collective dedicated to exploring the experiences of disability. And I got to listen to music made by disabled people, like Nestor Windrush and Nick Dyson. So growing up in Winnipeg meant I got to grow up in an amazing disability community and culture. This really helped me understand my own personal experiences with disability as political experiences driven by ableism, the discrimination against people with disabilities. But despite all of the wonders of the disability community, Manitoba remains one of the last provinces with large-scale institutions. And provincially, we never talk about them. Before taping this, I'd never been to the MDC. I'd never even known it had a cemetery. Going home is special. I got to hug my best friends. And two days later, they joined me, and we buckled up and drove to Portage La Prairie. I forgot to get sunflowers. Those are the flowers used to remember those lost to institutionalization. I scold myself. God damn it, Megan. But we pick up a coffee at a fruit stand on the way. I get an overwhelming amount of Saskatoon berries, buttery pastries, and prairie wildflowers to try and make the drive a little bit easier. Driving to Portage, I'm once again reminded just how flat it is. There are so few trees. You can really see everything. Portage La Prairie is a small city with just over 10,000 people. Until 2018, you could get there by Greyhound, but it closed its doors, and nowadays there are few ways to get there if you don't drive. And this hour drive and difficulty getting there, it's intentional. Institutions were designed to be in complete isolation. Complete isolation meant that people with disabilities and the conditions that they lived in wouldn't be seen. Complete isolation also means that it's difficult for family and friends to visit. And even darker, the flat, treeless land made it really difficult for people to escape these institutions. The hour drive from Winnipeg made Portage La Prairie a desirable place for a lot of different institutions over time. In just five years, between 1888 and 1893, a woman's prison, the Portage La Prairie Indian Residential School, and the Manitoba Home for Incurables were built on the perimeters of the town. The Manitoba Home for Incurables, what would become the MDC, was built in 1890 and had 57 residents. And the name, Home for Incurables, really showed the thought behind the institution to isolate and institutionalize those who would not get better 
for the rest of their lives. But maybe that name was a bit too on the nose. So in 1924, the name of the Portage Institution was changed to the Home for the Aged and Infirm. By this time, the institution had grown to 410 residents and 85 staff, and the population just kept growing. By the 1960s, the institution grew to over 1,200 people. Around this time, David Waramie was institutionalized into MDC. For clarity, I repeat what David says right after he says it. It's also available on our episode transcripts. So I'm going to introduce you to him now and hear a bit more about his experience there. My name is David Waramie. And I've been on the industry for 18 years, and I'm trying to watch my people. Hey, bad. That's what we're here for. You sat down. I'm the man. I hope it works out. My name is David Waramie, and I've been outside the institution for 18 years. And I'm tired of watching those people. It's bad. I hope we can close them down. That's why I came on this tour, to shut them down, every one of them. I hope it works out. I'm wondering, David, you have been such an amazing advocate for so many years. Your persistence is completely amazing. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what your life was like at the Manitoba Developmental Center. No good, Megan. No good. Did you have many friends there? Not too many. No. How many people did you live with? What? How many people slept in your room? Hmm? How many people slept in your room? Yeah, the one. 31. That's a lot of roommates. How many people do you live with now? What? How many people do you live with now? Nobody. 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 Do you like that? Yep. Yeah, that sounds much better. And what was it like to sleep there? You're good. Can you describe it? One makes a double double double. I can't. One makes a double double. I can't. I good. Boys were making love with other boys. It was no good. How many staff were in the room with you? Overnight. One and one. Overnight, only one. I'm going to paint a picture for you of just what it looked like inside. But if you want, you can see the actual pictures in our show notes. The wards in the institution where people slept were overcrowded, housing between 30 and 100 people on single beds, inches apart. There, adults with co-occurring disabilities were forced to sleep in cribs, There are no curtains. There are no doors. There is no privacy. The room is stark. There's no pictures on the walls, only hospital linens. And there's only one set of doors. These were the doors used to lock residents in overnight. And the bathrooms, they were also without doors. 10 toilets side by side. No separation. Here's Wayne, reflecting on his time in the institution. He was incarcerated at the Manitoba Developmental Center for 30 years. I won't forget what happened. Never. I will never forget what happened there. Never. Remember for the rest of your life, hmm? my friend. Keep it on for the rest of your life. Yep, my friend. Because it used to happen there before. Makes you kind of wonder. (laughs) Remember in the bedroom there? Yeah. Used to be pissing shit all over the place and you had to clean it all up. Yeah. Yeah. People used to go and drink all the toilet bowls and all used to run around all bare naked. Yeah, I remember that all right. Boys in the bathroom fucking all night. Boys in the bathroom fucking all night. Yeah, lots of that was going on, too. There should be some awful things there, Dave. 
No one go back to live there. No, no I don't. Uh, no. You won't go back to living there, right? Bad enough. We're going to shut it down. We're going to shut it down. We're not going to give up. We're not going to give up. No. We're going to keep on pushing. <laughs> We're going to keep on pushing. Piss and shit everywhere makes sense. During the night, people were locked in their wards because there was only one worker. And only one worker was intentional. Understaffing the institution was used to drive down the costs by supplementing the paid labor with unpaid labor of residents. This deliberate understaffing made it really unsafe for the people who were living there. But don't worry, we have a whole other episode on that. Driving into Portage, I felt my jaw clenching. There is more than one Manitoba Developmental Center on Google Maps. We tried the first. It's a brutalist office building, completely out of place in the rural prairie neighborhood. We try again. The institution is two blocks away, just 30 seconds in the car. And as we arrive, I feel my heart rate speed up. The car gets quiet. We stopped our music and reach out to hold each other's hands. The institution is threatening. Private property science dichotomizing my understanding of this publicly operated institution. No trespassing. Trespassers will be prosecuted. We pull up in front of the litany of signs so I can take my photos. It's 4.35. Shift change. Pickup trucks filter out of the one-way street. And a woman in a lifted truck rolls down her window. What are you doing? Do you need any help? Just another developmental service worker trying to help yet another disabled person. I feel our car's collective heart rates rise. We obviously can't get past the gates and sit there, waiting for people to leave, to take more photos. The Freedom Tour also struggled to get into the grounds. They were able to get past the gates, but not into any of the buildings. We're gonna take some pictures of the place they call NBC. I call it a dump, but they call it NBC. That's where we're headed. We're going to see where David used to live. First, they lock him in. He gets out. Now he can't go back in without supervision. In my point of view, it's the hellhole from Manitoba. The Manitoba Developmental Center is a hellhole. A hellhole that people still live in. This is a place where so many people were incarcerated, institutionalized, abused, subject to witnessing abuse, and were forbidden from leaving. People lived their entire lives there, incarcerated in this space. And people spent their entire lives trying to escape there. David is just one of them. During his time in the institution, David ran away nine times to escape the violence. He told me not to see nothing but going on here. They told me, never say nothing, what's going on there. They told me not to say nothing, that's going on there. How would you let it take it? Everything was a secret. When you go home, you don't tell nothing what's going on there. Nothing. When you go home, you don't tell nothing what's going on there. My mom phoned you. Yeah. And asked me what's going on. I know, I remember that. We did phone a few times because of what you told mom, and she was amazing. When I went back, I got locked up for it. When I went back there, I got locked up for it for three weeks. For three weeks? Yeah, so then we wouldn't phone anymore because then we was getting him in trouble, you know. It still was a secret, buddy. A lot of that stuff has changed, no, David. No, no. It still got secret in there, David. No? It still got it. As a result of these horrible conditions, David tried to escape nine separate times. Each time, he was captured and returned to the developmental center, where he was consistently punished. On one occasion, 
David was hit by the staff with a two-by-four for trying to escape. Every time he was placed in their version of solitary confinement, where he was forced to sleep naked on the floor without a mattress. When he was in solitary confinement, he saw other residents who were chained to the floor as a form of punishment. I think about this conversation between David and Wayne a lot. It's easy to get in there. Yeah. But it's hard to get out. Yeah. Easy to get in there, hard to get out. And the horrific abuse that David experienced in the wake of his escapes shows just how perseverant David is and just how violent the conditions of the Manitoba Developmental Center were. And the abuse that David experienced wasn't in isolation. David told me about some of the abuse that he witnessed. And what were the staff? Did you like the staff people? No. What were they like? Bad. Bad, yeah. Do you, do you have a question you'd like to ask? Why were they bad? Were they mean? Oh. Well, me. yeah, I know. Yeah, we're not going to put that in there. It's a name of a staff he uses. Okay. I'm killed him. I know. Tell Megan the story. He beat the boy up back and boom. I was watching him. You were watching it. Exactly. I jumped. If it's too late, I hate you to hate the boy. Hmm. Did you catch that, Megan? Do you want me to repeat any of that? Yeah, if you could repeat it. So he was in his room watching this staff member named who was beating another boy black and blue and caught David watching it. And he said to him, you want to be next? And he said to there will be two hits. I will hit you and you will hit the floor. And what did he do? Walked away. He walked away. Because why? <laughs> Why did he walk away? He was scared. Damn straight he was. He was scared of him. I wasn't going that day. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of Dave's proudest moments in there where he stood up for himself and the staff walked away. You are such a fighter. David. Now, David's story is an anecdotal. There are so many stories of violence, abuse, and neglect from the MDC. Here's Adrian's story. I used to live at the Manitoba Development Center. The rules were very strict and I did not think they were very fair. When we did not follow these rules, we had our privileges taken away. Some of the staff were meaner than others and these staff members would actually hit the patients. I witnessed a friend of mine being hit in the head and face for nothing more than simply getting upset about something. Finally, I would just like to add free our people. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Staff hit patients for being upset. See, this is where one of the very fundamental problems of institutions arise. Staff have so much power and so much authority over a group of people that are made vulnerable, who are prevented from seeing the people they love who are not trusted by authorities, and who are far away from home. And people were killed by these conditions. David told me about this. Megan, one boy hung himself. One boy hung himself at MDC. Where was that? In the kitchen. In the kitchen. That room had to be locked all the time. That room had to be locked by someone all the time. But somebody forgot to lock the door that day. And that boy hung himself. Yeah. Did other people die when you were there? Joyce Kippen. It fell off the tower. Joyce Joyce Gibbon. One hundred and fifty feet. She climbed up the water tower and she threw herself off of it. 150 feet. And many, many people who were at MDC. Watch. When you hit the sidewalk, there were eight. And they were all in their rooms, and they had little tiny windows in their rooms, and so many people, so many survivors that we've met with over the years. 
every one of them tells us that story about Joyce. That was very sad. Hey, Dave. There have been so many people who have died preventable deaths at the MDC. Some deaths, like Joyce's, were in pursuit of freedom from violence and persecution, in pursuit of escape. There are so many deaths that the MDC has its own cemetery. Here's Mark and the Freedom Tour on their journey to the MDC cemetery. We're gonna drive around and we're gonna look at the cemetery. We're gonna try to find the cemetery. We want to take some pictures out there and remember all these people that have already passed away from MDC. We want to remember, remember them. Certain people that are buried here, their kinfolk never did find out about them. They never were told. When they died, they didn't tell the, the kinfolk, whoever they were, that they were dead. I found the cemetery location on Google Maps. The coordinates I obtained from a local cemetery archivist project. We head north on the 241 and speed past it. It's walking distance from the institution. And I get why we sped past it. There's no turnoff road, not even the familiar rumble of gravel. Just a hardly driven on patch of grass driveway brings us to the front of the cemetery. We park our cars. It seems like next to us is supposed to be the parking lot, but the uneven ground points to a more sinister reality. A wrought iron gate in the middle of a patch of grass reads MDC Cemetery. But let me be clear, this is not a cemetery. This is a mass grave. Pine trees section off the graves from the rural surroundings. Another canola field, a baseball diamond, a church, and a community center. Life surrounds this place of death. The trees surrounding it are planted in memorial of the people who died in the institution. The grove is filled with them. No names, only a bit of life. Some of these trees are so, so young. We walk past the gate. There aren't any paths in the cemetery. There are hardly headstones. Every step was physically painful. I grimaced as my feet connected with the ground. It's all a grave. I'm walking on a grave. The few headstones haunt me. One of them is not even a grave. It's a tiny tomb. She was five. She was 15. She didn't get a headstone. He didn't even have a date of birth. He didn't have a name. I lay down the wildflowers and I grip the top of the memorial, right where the bird shit has accumulated. I breathe. What do we do with the weight of it all? Where do you put flowers down when it's all a grave? In lieu of headstones, there are tiny concrete markers reading Protestant, New Protestant, Catholic, New Catholic. No names, only religion. How many people are buried beneath them? There are so many graves. So many people in their 30s, 40s, 20s, 10s. Entire lives lived in an institution. Short lives that only ever experienced incarceration. Long lives, decades and decades institutionalized. The memorial ends in 1967, but the institution, it's still open. The peak population hadn't even been reached in 1967. And while we don't know the number of people who died in the MDC between 1967 and today, Government commissions and coroner's inquests demonstrate just how horrific the conditions were. In 1967, David was still institutionalized. But by 1971, David tried to escape for the ninth time. 
making it all the way back to Winnipeg. And this escape was finally successful. Since David escaped, he has lived at home in the community. So I'm wondering, David, what has it meant for you to live in community? Good, good, Megan. Love it. Love it. That's amazing. Make, ask him, um, ask him who is, who's the boss now. Like, just say to him, who's the boss of your life now? Like, ask him that question. So who's the boss of your life now? Me. I'm the boss, Megan. You sure are. You sure are. I feel like you were the you were the boss shutting down the MTC. Two years later, a watershed report called the Clarkson Report, commissioned by the government about the conditions in the Manitoba Developmental Center, outlined the major issues. Here's just a few. MTC suffers from overcrowding and a lack of adequate plumbing. There is a lack of qualified personnel in some positions, including social services. The center is grossly understaffed. There is a lack of privacy provisions for residents, including bathing or going to the toilet. The infirmary and medical ward are grossly inadequate. And that same medical ward is so overcrowded that patients had to be wheeled out in order for oxygen to be wheeled in for other patients. By this time, Families of people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities began organizing against institutionalization. They formed citizen action groups across the country. In Manitoba, deinstitutionalization began its slow journey in 1982 with the Welcome Home Project. But unlike other provinces, Manitoba did not have an end date for institutional closure. The Welcome Home Report resulted between 1982 and 1986 in the largest movement of people from institutional care into Manitoba communities. In this initiative, 220 people moved from the MDC into community living situations. But even after 220 people left the institution, a 1987 Manitoba Ombudsman Report was released documenting many of the same conditions from that 1972 report. Here's some of them. The MDC is less than desirable for residents. The standard of care at the MDC has a long-standing issue. Despite the decreasing resident population, unexplained injuries continue to increase on an annual basis. An injury that resulted in the death of a resident had a direct correlation to the staffing level at the MDC. Many of the residents are unable to speak and our forgotten souls. By 1987, institutions in most provinces were closing. But unlike them, the MDC had no plan to close. Despite its constant failures and the mountains of evidence about the success and urgent need for deinstitutionalization. The next 10 years were classified by consistent staff abuse of residents. In one incident, a nurse was seen hitting a resident on the back of the head. That same nurse had previously been disciplined for using inappropriate and derogatory language with a resident while they were having a seizure, and in yet another incident, choking a resident. In one more incident, the nurse trained a resident to say, I am a mongoloid deformity. I am a genetic defect. And in 2004, the most deadly of these incidents occurred. On what was supposed to be an outing, eight institutionalized residents were taken on a drive around the city without seatbelts. During this drive, staff members stole the institutionalized people's money to buy themselves coffee, which they then drank in front of the residents, mocking them. They proceeded to run personal errands and ultimately decided not to go to the park. The staff members left one person with disabilities in the van. An hour later, he was found dead. So while most institutions across Canada were closing in the 2000s, including BC, Ontario, and Alberta, in 2004, the year that Dennis Robinson was killed at the NDC, the NDP government in Manitoba invested $40 million into upgrades. 
Infuriated by this investment in ongoing institutionalization, Inclusion Canada took the MDC to court. Here's Shelley Fletcher. She's the executive director of People First of Canada and has been involved in the fight against institutionalization for a while. How about you, Shelley? You have also been working on deinstitutionalization of the MDC for a long time now. Can you give us a little bit of a history of what the fight towards deinstitutionalization has been in Manitoba? The outcome of the class action lawsuit was not what we wanted. It was, there was a lot of, um, like, I think they committed to moving up to 16 people out, which, I mean, this took years and years and years in court. And it was, it was not the outcome we wanted. However, we have never stopped as People First, as the national task force between People First of Canada and the... The outcome of this first human rights complaint wasn't a failure. Moving any number of people out of the institution is a success in my eyes, but it was infuriating. And throughout the 2010s, the NDP government was reluctant to shutter the institution. Despite the government's own reports, legal action, and abundant academic and lived experience, the institution remained open. So why the heck weren't they closing it? Maybe, Shelley, this question's for you. What's been the main obstacle along the journey towards deinstitutionalization in Manitoba? Uh, it's political will. It really is. Um, you know, this has been the battle that we've been fighting for so many years. The town that this institution is in used to house a women's jail. It used to house a very, very large factory. Um, it was actually a, a potato factory. Um, I don't know. I, I can't say it was McCain's, but it was a really large potato. It was McCain's. There you go. Um, and over the years, the, the women's jail closed and they moved. Uh, uh, the women's jail closed. The potato factory closed. And MDC is the largest employing um, place in Portage La Prairie, where it is. And I mean, I, I can remember around um, in the like 2010-ish when the class action was going on, a reporter called me from the Portage La Prairie Leader or whatever the newspaper was. Daily Graphic. The Daily Graphic. And he asked me, like why we were trying to close this. And he was he, he was coming at it to me from, do you understand what would happen to this town if we closed MDC? Like we've already lost so much of our economy here. Do you like um like you you know it's the largest employer in the community. Like what would happen to our community? And I can remember just saying to him like that's a terrible trade-off for human beings' lives. That isn't, like, that's not even a conversation to have to talk about the economy of your community versus human beings' lives, their well-being, their safety. Employment has been such a huge player in the fight against closing institutions in Manitoba. All of the workers employed at the MDC are unionized. And the union has fought tirelessly for the maintenance of the MDC. Here's a commercial they funded in 2010 during that human rights complaint. An independent rating agency has given the programs and staff at the Manitoba Developmental Centre a grade of 98% for outstanding service to its clients. Portage La Prairie can be proud that MDC provides valuable services to vulnerable people and their families. Congratulations to the MDC staff. And thanks for always being there, providing a great quality of life in a safe and caring atmosphere. A message from MGEU. Now, let me be clear. I am incredibly pro-union and labor movements. But this isn't an issue of a bad apple. The staff weren't abusive because of the union, But rather, it's the conditions of institutionalization. Those are fundamentally violent, fundamentally abusive, giving the staff so much power over vulnerable people's lives. And that radio ad 
it gives a really specific point of view of the staff at the MDC. But here's another family member with another view of the staff. My name is Trisha Kellen, and I'm here today to share a little bit about what happened a year ago in 2006 to my daughter at MDC in Portage Prairie. My daughter is 31 and she's physically mentally challenged. From a, She has a head injury from a car accident 20 years ago. We had come to a point of uh, depression that Tammy was in that it was decided MDC would be a place for her to go to be cleaned out of meds and to take her off the medications that she was on. When we were, my husband and I were first told about MDC, all we knew about it was it was an institution. Always said to each other that we would never ever consider putting our kids in there. When it came down to no other place in Winnipeg for my daughter to go to be taken off of the medications, we really had to seriously think about it and they were telling us 21 days that she'd be there. It didn't seem like too bad. Self-abuse started, which is something we've never seen in our daughter. We watched her be bodily picked up and carried up staircases and restrained by three different people, one on each side, one laying on top of her. Uh, we were degraded by the nurses. It was supposed to be three weeks. After 52 days, we walked in and my daughter was standing there with no voice left from screaming. After screaming, 18 bruises from head to toe, two black eyes, huge lump on her forehead and a lump on the back of her head and we just took her out. I mean, we've presented a plan, a closure plan to the government that included every single person who worked there and lived there, a plan and it was gonna be $29 million cheaper than what it costs to run them, to bring people out into community and find jobs for everybody. And they said, no, that was in like 2010, we did that. They said, no. I am 95% sure that when I heard this, steam poured out of my ears. I was fuming and honestly recording this, I'm still fuming. The MTC kept running campaigns, and I mean full-scale campaigns, against its closure, failing to mention that workers would be employed after the institution closed. In 2016, it was one of their primary questions to provincial parties in the Manitoba election. They asked, what is your plan, if elected, to ensure that the MTC remains open? Parties unanimously said they would keep funding the MTC and fight for its doors to remain open. So it's not about money. It's not about the cost of putting people in community. It's actually cheaper to put people in community. It's a, like, I don't even like to talk about money with this. It's about dignified lives and about being part of society. And so we know from our work across Canada that institutions only close when the government in place says they're going to close. Inclusion Canada and People First of Canada have continued its fight to close the MTC. This time, they went the route of a class action lawsuit. Here's David and Shelley. So in Ontario, they, they did a class action lawsuit against the three institutions that were left there, and it was successful. The class action was successful. And so the lawyers who spearheaded that class action contacted us in Manitoba and said, would we be interested in, in leading, um, in leading a class suit? So that's pretty much been David's dream come true. His whole life, he has said, people need to pay for what they did to us. And so. When David was approached, of course, he jumped on it. Um, I assist David as, as well as another uh, colleague and friend of ours named Christine Curry, uh, who's a dear friend of David's and a really good support to Dave. So the three of us, David is the lead plaintiff, and Chris and I are just here to help Dave with all of that legal stuff that goes on. So the class action was launched against the Manitoba government, and... The government, every, every step of this takes a really long time. 
And so step one was was filing the, the class action in front of a judge. We had to go before the judge, our, our, our lawyers, and, and there was a, a, a couple, quite a few survivors from the institution who came that day and just supported it. And then the government pled their case on why there shouldn't be a class action lawsuit. <clears throat> then we all went away and then COVID hit. And then we, it took a really long time, but we did finally get word back that that judge ruled in our favor and said, yep, you guys have enough here to move forward with the lawsuit, a class action lawsuit. So then the Manitoba government was going to appeal that decision. And um, again, that takes a really long time. We just recently found out, I would say two weeks ago, that the government decided not to appeal the decision. So we are moving forward. Yay! Right, Dave? We're moving forward to the next step of the lawsuit. So David's the lead plaintiff on this class action, but he's representing everybody who lived there. So the $50 million class action is underway, and David gets to live one of his dreams, representing the class in holding the Manitoba government accountable for the years of abuse labeled people were forced to endure. Beyond the MDC closing, is there anything else that you're hoping for? It's going to pay. Yeah, they're gonna, we hope they're going to pay. We talked about things like um, therapy for those who survived it and have PTSD. They are not covered um, for, for any kind of counseling for their PTSD. That's something that we did put in. Um, we wanted to make sure that there is an appropriate landmark that depicts the people's lives of those who live there. So a memorial site is what we're looking for. Where, where that will be, we don't know, but you know, that was something that, that was important. I would think I'm, I'm going to say probably to the class, I can't speak on behalf of the class and I won't speak on behalf of David because Dave, for David, financial remuneration is very important but also an apology. They want an apology. Get this. In early 2021, the Manitoba government announced that they were finally going to close the MDC. This is a huge step towards deinstitutionalization and justice for labeled people in Manitoba and beyond. But this fight isn't over until the institution is closed and the government is held fully accountable for the centuries of removal, segregation, and abuse that people labeled with intellectual disabilities faced in the province. This fight for justice must include accountability. Currently, none of the records from the MDC are publicly available. These records must be made public in order for there to be accountability for this institutionalization. And those unmarked graves that I talked about, they need to be investigated. The violence within these institutions must be reckoned with, because this injustice cannot be forgotten. And as for the institution, I'm going to leave the last words to David, because he has been crystal clear about his desire for what will happen to the institution. Bam. Dave's been pretty adamant about that his whole life, that those buildings need to be... I love the culture, now I've been down. That was something we did talk to the Manitoba government about already, that as they start to demolish the buildings, we asked them to let us know what the de demolition plan was, because the a lot of survivors want to be there when they knock the first building down. And that's really important. I don't know if we're going to get it or not, but I will keep reminding the government of this, that as part of their healing, they need to see those buildings come down. Yeah, I feel like David needs to be right there, mm -hmm. um, essentially operating the demolition.
Institutions was created by me, Megan Linton, with support from People First of Canada and Inclusion Canada's Joint Task Force on Deinstitutionalization. Audio recording also by me. This episode was advised by the Joint Task Force on Deinstitutionalization. Audio post-production and sound design were by Helena Krobath, and our theme music was composed by Bara Ladek. <laughs>